First Peter chapter 3, verse 13, follow along as I read. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Let's pause there and... We'll jump in for a moment. So I, I, there was a pastor who was working on a project in the front of his house. So he's out there, you know, hammering and nailing. And out of the corner of his eye, he notices that one of the young boys from the neighborhood there, his next door neighbor, is, is like watching him intently. And he keeps going and the kid's like watching intently for like 10 to 15 minutes. Finally, the pastor stops and he looks at this young man and he says, you trying to pick up some tips on building? And the kid says, nope, I'm just waiting to see what the pastor says when he hits his thumb with the hammer. <laughs> it's a good question. What does the pastor say when he hits his thumb with the hammer? Aaron Sabio will tell you afterwards. Um, <laughs> But you know, it, we've been talking about how the world is constantly watching us as believers. We could say the mic is always on, the camera is always rolling, and people are constantly trying to figure out what we are about. And Peter has been admonishing us that we need to live in such a way that our conduct would be honorable amongst those who are unbelievers. And if we are living in that type of way, that we can actually impact them for Christ. And we wrapped up this section last week where Peter gave us this kind of final exhortation as it relates to our conduct when he said, because we're being watched, we need to be tender-hearted, be loving, be compassionate, be non-retaliatory. And so we talked about all of those attributes last week, but I want you to notice how Peter follows up that thought in verse 13 when he says, who is going to harm you for being followers for what is good? In other words, you know, most people are not going to harm you for doing good, for seeking to be a blessing. No, you're going to be well-liked. However, there are exceptions. That's why he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, there's always exceptions. There's always those people that do want to come and don't like believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said this. He said, those in darkness, those who are walking in darkness, hate those who are walking in the light. Why? Because the light exposes their evil deeds. Somebody like that? <laughs> and that's true. The light exposes the evil deeds of those walking in darkness. It's almost like when, you know, maybe you've been in a movie. Or you're in a dark room and you walk outside into the sunlight and it like hurts your eyes, right? You're like agitated. Well, that's what Jesus was saying. That's the kind of effect that those who are walking in darkness, when they encounter somebody who's walking in the light, it can kind of be an agitation to them. In fact, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, you know, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. 
And they hated me without cause. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now, now why is that? Why would unbelievers want to come against Christians and followers of Christ? Well, one of the big reasons is because our message is a narrow message. It's exclusive. You see, the Bible, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, everybody say no one. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's exclusive, friends. That's narrow. There's one way, Jesus said. And so the Bible teaches us that, hey, if you want to live forever in eternity with God, you need to believe in Jesus, and everyone who rejects Jesus will be forever lost. And the world doesn't like that message. We live in a world that says there is no absolute truth, and we just need to accept what everyone believes as being right for them. And when Christian stands up and says, hey, there's only one way and it's Jesus and there's only one real truth and it's the Bible, the world doesn't like that. And we're seeing that antagonism toward the Bible, toward followers of Jesus is growing more and more in our society. So here's the question we want to answer today. What do we do about it? What should, how should we respond to persecution? Well, the first thing that Peter tells us here is that we should fear not. He says, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And the word afraid in this text means to not be intimidated by their threats. Don't be intimidated. The Bible says that we as Christians have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So Peter's saying, don't be intimidated by them, but he's saying more than that. He's saying instead, press into Jesus. Look at verse 15. This is what he means when he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear sanctify the Lord in your heart. What what does that mean? Well, another way that you might say this is set apart Jesus as Lord in your heart. How do you do that? Well, Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 12, he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Here's what that looks like. Before you go out to face the world... Each day, you make sure that you are inwardly right in your heart with Jesus. You make sure that your heart is surrendered to Jesus. You tell Jesus, today, I want your will above and before my will. I want your way above and before my way. It's what we were singing about. It's being surrendered to Jesus. It's daily setting him apart as Lord in our heart. It's daily reaffirming our love and our commitment to him. That's what it means to set apart the Lord Jesus in your heart. Now, what's interesting is those listening to Peter write these words, or those reading these words that Peter has written here in First Peter, living in the first century, they would understand this even a little bit further than what we do. That it wasn't just G- Peter saying to them, don't be intimidated by them, but rather be bold. 
Be bold for Jesus. Calling him your Lord. Why do I say that? Well, you see, 2,000 years ago, if you were living in the first century Roman era, if you stood up in a public square and declared, Jesus is God, people hearing you would be like, cool, awesome, that's great for you. Because the Roman Empire was polytheistic, meaning they believed in many, many gods. So you saying, hey, Jesus is God. It's like, all right, great. He's another one. Awesome. That's cool if that's what you believe. But if you stood up in a public square and you said, Jesus is Lord, and he's the Lord above all, you could be in danger of your very life. Because Caesar declared himself to be Lord. And in the Roman Empire, you had to say, Caesar is Lord. And so if a Christian was saying, Jesus is Lord above all, he was basically saying, Caesar is not Lord. He'd be in danger of his life. You know, it's been said, the only way to stand publicly is to kneel privately. We see a great example of this in the story of Daniel who stood boldly before King Nebuchadnezzar. And we're told the reason why in Daniel chapter 1, it says of, of Daniel that Daniel purposed in his heart, when he was taken off to, to Babylon, he purposed in his heart to not defile himself. So it all begins there in the heart. You sanctify the Lord Jesus. You sanctify Jesus as Lord in your heart. And what Peter's implying is that when you do that, when you live like that, unbelievers are going to take notice. In fact, there is documented historical evidence of this. That when the Christians during the Roman Empire, in that time of the Roman Empire, were being carted off into the Roman Colosseum to be fed to the lions, there would be a line of Christians waiting to go into the Colosseum to face their death, their martyrdom. The Colosseum is packed full of people that have come to watch this. It was like, you know, one of their sporting events. They were kind of a morbid culture. And the Christians are in line and they're singing praises to God. And literally, there were people that got out of the stands and in that moment put their faith in Jesus and joined them in the line. Because they were so moved by their boldness and they were so moved by their confidence and their calmness in the face of death. And what Peter is saying, when people see us living for Jesus and living in a way that is different from the world's, where it stands out to them that they would be led to ask, hey, what's the deal with you? What's the hope? And Peter says that we need to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, the word defense here, in the Greek, it's the word apologia. We get our word apology from that. This might sound weird to you. Is Peter saying that we always need to be ready to give uh, an apology for our faith? (laughs) Like, are we we always to be ready to say, hey, I'm really sorry, you know, if I offend you because I'm a Christian? No, that's not what he's saying. Because we also get the word apologetics from this. And the word apologetics means it really speaks of what a lawyer does when he stands up in a courtroom and gives a formal proclamation or defense of one of his clients. He's giving compelling reasons why his client is innocent. And so Peter says we need to be able to give compelling evidences and reasons 
for what we believe and why. We need to know what we believe, church, and why we believe it. You know, a lot of unbelievers have really good questions, and we as a church, we need good answers. That's why in the fall, on Wednesday nights, one of the things we're going to offer is a new foundations class, where we're going to look at the foundations of the faith. And if you've never studied that, I encourage you to plan on taking that class, because it's so imperative that we do that. But here's what I want us to consider for a moment today. What would an unbeliever see in us that would cause them to say, you seem hopeful, why? You know, we live in a world that is getting harder to live in. We live in a world that's getting more and more crazy. Month by month, year by year, believers and unbelievers both realize that. So think for a moment, what would cause an unbelieving person in your sphere of influence to say to you, this world is nuts, but you seem hopeful, and I want to know why. I can think of a couple reasons that might motivate them to ask that question. One is our response to the craziness. You see, when, when the world sees the craziness going, that's going on and they begin to freak out and they begin to stress out and they see us as being calm in the midst of the craziness, I think they take notice of that. Like, okay, what's the deal? Now, why should we remain calm? Because not all of us do, right? <laughs> why should we remain calm? We should remain calm because we know that Jesus has a plan. We know how the story ends. Guys, we should not be surprised when we see wickedness growing in our world because that's exactly what the Bible said would be happening in the last days. But we remain calm because we know who is on the throne. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Jesus is on the throne. We remain calm, not indifferent, not complacent, but calm because we're trusting in him. We know the plan that Jesus, he came and died on the cross that he might redeem not just mankind, but this entire world back to himself. You see, the Bible tells us that in the book of Genesis, when God made this world, that he gave it, dominion of it, into the hands of man. But man rebelled. They sinned. And because of the fall, this world was forfeited into the hands of of the devil. That's why the Bible refers to Satan as the God of this world. But listen, Satan knows that he's living on borrowed time. Jesus came to redeem mankind back to himself, but he also came to redeem this world back to himself, but he hasn't laid claim to it yet. In fact, we have a beautiful picture of this in Revelation chapter 5. John is taken in a vision into the heavenly realm. And he sees God on the throne and he's holding this scroll. And the scroll represents the title deed to the earth. And they're asking, who is worthy to take the scroll and to loose the seals? And throughout heaven, no one is found who's worthy. And John begins to weep. Because in his heart, he's thinking, you know, the world is going to forever be in the hands of the devil. And then they say to him, hey, John, don't cry because Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the conquering one, he has been found 
worthy to take the scroll and loose the seals. And it says John looks up expecting to see a lion. And instead he sees a lamb as though he'd been slain. Jesus. He died on the cross to redeem mankind back to himself, but also to redeem this planet back to himself. And one day he is going to come again and lay claim to what he has purchased. And we're looking forward to that day, right? But listen, in the meantime, his heart is focused on souls, on people who are lost, on people who, who don't know him, that he you know, wants to save. And that's where he wants our heart to be focused on as well. Those in our sphere of influence, those in our workplace, those in our families that are lost, that, that don't know Christ, that are lost in their sin. And so when we see the world is getting crazy and we as followers of Jesus remain calm, unbelievers, they, they take notice of that. But I think another way that they take notice is when we not just respond differently, but when we act differently. Did you realize, or do you realize, that Christianity and the gospel of Jesus has been the major source of changing the injustices seen in society throughout its inception? Let me give you an example. A whole con- the whole concept of the value of life, that's a biblical concept, That's a gospel concept. The whole concept of human rights is a biblical concept. It's a gospel concept. Those values emerge from those with a Christian worldview because we believe what the Bible says, that all men and women have been created in the image of God and are important to God. What about women's rights? Where did that come from? Gloria Steinem? Nope. Women's liberation movement? Nope, nope. That's also a biblical concept. Jesus himself validated women in a culture that treated women at best as second-class citizens and at worst as possessions to be used. Peter and Paul, in their writings, they challenged the whole societal norm when they challenged husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, that they should treat their wives the way that Jesus treats his bride and that he serves her and gave himself for her. In a culture that didn't respect women, the gospel declared that men and women were all one in Christ. That's a Christian worldview. What about about compassion for the sick? compassion for the poor that also came from christians did you know the first hospitals were founded by christians the red cross was originally a christian organization and research has shown that in cultures that were at one time primitive when missionaries would come in with the gospel that in those primitive cultures literacy would go up advancement in technology would go up And compassion would go up because these people's lives were being transformed in a holistic type of way by the gospel. The Christian belief that all men are created in the image of God was the force behind eradicating slavery in England, led by William Wilberforce, as well as in this country by Abraham Lincoln. Those are all ways that the gospel has impacted culture throughout the centuries, challenging the social norms of society. 
But what about today? What should be different about us that would make the world stop and take notice? Well, I asked this question last week to our ministry team here, our our, our staff, and and I got some really good answers that I want to share with you. I divided them into things that we do and things that we don't do as the church that are in contrast to how the world does things. Here's a list of them. Here's what we do. We inconvenience ourselves for the sake of others. In other words, we sacrifice without hoping to gain anything personally. We offer tangible help to those who are in need. Could be money, shelter, clothing, transportation, expecting nothing in return. We offer everyday kindness in, a, in word and deed, just plain being nice. We go the extra mile with someone that we know will not make it to where they need to be without someone to push them along. We pray for those who treat us like enemies and we seek to bless them. Who in the world does that? We make our other people's problems, our problems, getting involved and invested in their lives. We humble ourselves in front of others and build them up. That's 100% opposite of what the world does. The world seeks to exalt themselves and to humble people around them. We have integrity, standing for what is right, whether it's popular or not, without regard for politics, popular culture, or social shaming. We pay our bills and don't look for ways out of it, even when it's difficult. Those are all things that we do, or at least should be doing as believers, that makes us stand out from those who are not followers of Christ. What about things that we don't do? We don't kick people who are down. We don't label people and never let them shake that label. We don't participate in gossip, tearing someone down behind their back. We don't retaliate when wronged. We don't carry grudges. We are peacemakers instead. We don't blame the world and everyone else for our own faults. We don't expect others to carry our burdens. We carry theirs. Those are all great insights that when unbelievers see those type of things in us, they're drawn to ask, man, what's the deal with you guys? What's the hope that you're holding on to? And Peter says that we should answer them with meekness. That means power under control. And fear, that means respect. In other words, when we're talking to people about Jesus, we need to do it respectfully. Even when they push back. Even when they fight back. You see, it's possible. Don't miss this. It's possible to win the argument and lose the soul. Guys, we need to know what the goal is. We need to make sure that, that, hey, the goal is to win the soul. So we need to do that, and we need to respond with respect and grace. So you want to be a blessing to those in your sphere sphere of influence. I have an acronym for you. It's the word bless. I encourage you to just put this to prayer. The B means to begin with prayer. It's you beginning to just pray this prayer every day. Lord, help me to see the people that come into my life the way that you see them. Give me your eyes and your heart for those people. The L stands for listen to others. Be willing to hear their opinions, to hear their heart, to hear their struggles, to hear their concern, and don't be so quick to dismiss those type of things. The E, engage. 
or you could say eat, because that's one of the ways that we like to engage with people, right? We like to eat with them. But the idea is to get in neutral spaces, to engage in life with people, look for common ground, be it sports or music or hobbies, to engage people. The S stands for serve. Look for those ways to serve those in your sphere of influence. And the final S is to share. Look for opportunities to share your faith in Jesus with them. I guarantee you this. You begin to make that your prayer. You begin to make that your focus. And you will be just blown away at how impactful you are for the kingdom of God. So the goal is to live in a way where you're making a good impact on society, being a blessing, not a pain, not a burden, and the result will be this. Even if they are persecuting or coming against you, because of that, you'll have a clear conscience. Look at verse 16. He says, having a good good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil you know some christians they get persecuted because they're just outright mean and disrespectful other christians get persecuted because they're just weird you know they just say and do weird things others get persecuted because they're obnoxious or maybe they're lousy workers. And listen, that is not suffering for Jesus with a good conscience. You know in your conscience, they might be coming against you and you know, I deserve this. But if you seek to live in a way that is honoring to Christ, and people are coming against you because of it, yeah, that's still hard, but it's sort of a badge of honor. And this is what Peter is telling us here. He, he uses for conscience sake as the first motivation that we have for enduring persecution. His second reason, though, is even greater. He tells us it brings us into a deeper union with Christ. Look at verse 18. We'll pick it up there. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He's saying, look, Jesus also suffered for doing good. And when we suffer, it puts us into a close communion with him. That's why Paul the Apostle talked about being a partaker in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. And he viewed it as a badge of honor, almost like as a blessing that I'm so glad that I get to partake in the suffering of Christ. You know, the Bible gives us this promise. This is a promise that most Christians don't like to claim, but the Bible promises this, that if you seek to live godly in Christ, you will suffer persecution. In other words, it comes with the territory. It's part of the deal. But it can be your badge of honor. And when you're suffering for doing good or you're suffering for Christ, it it brings you into this connection with Jesus and you experience the the strength of Jesus in ways that you don't normally experience. So Peter gives the second motivation is that this union with Christ. But in these verses, Peter also gives us a beautiful picture of what the suffering of Jesus accomplished for humankind. And this is what we're going to focus on in the rest of our time as we wrap up today and head towards, uh, we're going to receive communion at the end of our service today. And I want you to notice a few things that Peter mentions here. First of all, in verse 18, he tells us that Jesus suffered once for sins. The CSB version says that he suffered once 
for all. In other words, the death of Jesus Christ covered the sin of the entire world, past, present, and future. He took all of our sin once for all, and another translation puts it once and for all, meaning that his sacrifice was the final sacrifice, that there's not a need anymore for any lambs or bulls to be sacrificed on the altar because Jesus was the final sacrifice. But here's what's interesting. I still see a lot of people trying to pay their debt to God through their religious rituals and their religious offerings instead of just believing and receiving what Jesus did for them. Jesus suffered for sins, for all. The just, Peter says, that's Jesus. For the unjust, that's us. Paul the Apostle put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you are here today and you are in Christ, you've given your heart to Christ, God looks at you and he sees you covered in the righteousness of Jesus because on the cross, all of our sin was put on Christ that all of his righteousness might be transferred to us. That's who we are in Christ, the just for the unjust. And then Peter also tells us the purpose that he might bring us to God. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible tells us that the veil in the temple that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies, was torn in two. It was God's way. Basically, it was torn from the top to the bottom as if God was saying, open house. That veil stood between the holy place and the holy of holies where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. And only one person could go into that holy of holies and only one day out of the year, the high priest. But Jesus, or God, reaches down and rips that veil to basically say, anybody can come to me. Come into my presence through the blood of my son, Jesus. We go from being his enemies to now becoming his friends. We go from being his enemies to now being a part of his family. But the second purpose was to set us free from sin and Satan's power. On the cross, Jesus cries out, Te telestai. Everybody say that. Te telestai. It means it is finished. It means it's been paid in full. When somebody in that culture was paying off a piece of property, they made that final payment. They would say, Te telestai. It's been paid in full. Well, when Jesus was on the cross, our debt was paid in full by his sacrifice. He cries out, It is finished. What was finished? The price for our redemption. What was finished? The pathway to lead us into relationship with God. What was finished? The devil's power was broken. And Peter explains this in an unusual way as he closes out this chapter. Let's look at it. Verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Here's what he's saying. Physically, Jesus died. He was put to death. His body died. His heart was ruptured. It stopped beating. Physically, he was dead, but his spirit was alive. And his spirit was active during those three days. What was he doing? He tells us, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine and long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Pause there. 
The reformer Martin Luther said of this passage, he called it a wonderful and obscure text. Maybe the most obscure in all of the New Testament. And Luther said, and I'm not quite sure I know what Peter meant by this. I'm so glad he said that because I really don't know quite sure what he meant either by this. But I have a suggestion. And many Bible scholars agree with this point of view of this passage. That during the time between Jesus' death and resurrection... Jesus went into the underworld to proclaim a message to the forces of darkness. And I want you to note, he didn't go there to preach the gospel to the wicked who had died. That wasn't what he was doing. The Bible says it is point unto man wants to die and after that the judgment. He wasn't coming to give the wicked people who had had turned from God a second chance because it says that he specifically was talking to these spirits. And the word spirit that's used here is a word that is in reference to demons. And he gives us a direct reference to who these demons were. They were demons that were around in the days of Noah, the time of Noah. And we read in Genesis chapter 6 that were there, there were these demons that committed a great wickedness that resulted in this unusual species on the earth, these giants. And Jesus came to give a proclamation to these demons, a proclamation of his victory over the powers of hell and darkness. When Jesus died on the cross, there must have been a party in hell, right? We killed the Son of God until Jesus shows up and says, not so fast. (laughs) In actuality, I've defeated sin, and I'm going to defeat death because I'm going to rise again. And I just want you guys to know that the party is over. Paul the Apostle put it this way in 2 Corinthians 2. Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. That's speaking of Satan and his demonic forces. And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. And that's why Jesus' victory means that you and I, as Christians, although we are in a battle, listen, church, we're not fighting for victory, but we're fighting from a position of victory because Jesus has already won the war. Amen? And his victory means that you and I no longer have to live our lives given over to habitual sin because the power of Jesus has set us free. I heard about a man who every week week went to a prayer meeting at his church. And every week he would pray the same prayer because all week long, this man, he was not walking in the power of a resurrected Christ in his life. So he keeps, kept giving himself over to and giving in to habitual sin. And so every week at this prayer meeting, he would pray, Lord, move the, take the cobwebs, cobwebs away from my life. And it was, his, it was his way of basically confessing, Lord, I've sinned again. And just remove the junk, take away the cobwebs. And every week it was like the same thing. Well, one of his friends who also went to that prayer meeting and knew how this guy was living, one night this guy begins to pray that prayer lord take away the cobwebs and his friend interrupts him and says lord don't do it kill the spider instead (laughs) and in essence jesus basically announced i've killed the spider satan does not have the kind of power and grip that he once had in the world 
I made sure of it by what I did on the cross. And so the death and resurrection of Jesus means that you and I can now walk in victory. And Peter says that we have a great picture of this victory in baptism. Look at verse 21. There is also an antitype, a picture, which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God and angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Peter says this victory that we have in Christ is seen in this picture of baptism. Baptism is something that we are to do after we've given our life to Christ. It's a mark of a disciple because Jesus said, believe and be baptized. It's one of the reasons why we love doing baptisms here. We're having another one in June. But baptism is also symbolic of what Jesus has done for us because baptism represents a death, a burial, It represents our old man, our old nature being buried with Christ in the grave. But Jesus didn't stay in the grave, right? Jesus rose and he came out of the grave and he lives and he now lives in us. And so we come up out of the water and the idea is now we can live and walk in this newness of life in Christ. He rose and lives in us to empower us. That's the power of the gospel. I'll close with this true story. Ricky Wagner lives in Dayton, Ohio. He's a bus driver, and he's a Christian. And when he's driving his bus at night, he wears this jacket, and inside there's a pocket, and he keeps a decent-sized Bible in the inside of his pocket, and he reads it on his brakes. Well, one night he was out working on the front of his bus. There was a little mechanical error when three young men approached him it was a gang initiation and one of those young men had to kill somebody to get into the gang so they pulled a gun and they shot ricky twice in the chest he fell to the ground they ran off but get this those bullets hit his bible the bible stopped the bullets i just gotta say i don't think an ipad or an iphone would have done that all right (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) The Bible stopped the bullets. And the gospel stops the fiery darts, the bullets that Satan throws at us. You see, Satan shoots his arrows, and he says to you and I, you're not enough. But the gospel says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. The enemy says, you've gone too far. God won't accept you. And the gospel declares that the blood of Jesus Christ is able to cleanse us from all sin. Satan says, you are still in bondage to sin and me. And the gospel says that he who the Son of Man has set free is free indeed. Satan says that we're still doomed and damned. And the gospel says, in Jesus, we have a glorious destiny. That the best is yet to come. Satan says that you are lost, and the gospel says you can be found if you want to be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for the glorious truth 
that Jesus, you went to the cross and you paid the price for all of our sin. And you made a way for sinners to come into relationship with God. You made a way for us to be set free. And Lord, we are so thankful for that. And Lord, today we want to celebrate what you did for us. We want to celebrate the victory that we have in Jesus.